Well, what does God want from you? If you had to sit down, write it down, what would you write? Because surely all of us, we've had moments where we've been overwhelmed of being unsure of what we are supposed to do or what's expected of us. And for me, I remember having our first son, Isaiah, and being in the hospital. And, and Misty went into, my wife went into labor about three in the afternoon, and Isaiah was born about 12 hours later. Adrenaline pushed me through, even though we didn't get any sleep that night. And, and all, even though all the visitors we had, all the family that came to see us, we, adrenaline just kept me going. But later that evening, Isaiah refused to go to sleep. And who can blame him, right? I mean, he's been in the womb for nine months, right? He's, he's finally got out, right? He's got things to do, people to see. He's not going to sleep. And so he's just crying in his bassinets, and we could not get him to sleep. And my wife and I, we'd been awake for about 36 hours at that point. And so we began to, to, to debate and argue who was supposed to put Isaiah to sleep. And I'll own the fact this was not one of my finest moments as a husband, in fact, it was probably the, the worst moment in the history of husbands, uh, just arguing about who should put our son to sleep. Well, finally, we gave up. Right? And he was our firstborn, and we could have just sit him down in the nursery, but we thought, no, we can't give up just 12 hours in. We've got we to gotta be the ones to put him to sleep. But we finally gave up. We sit him down in the nursery. He goes to sleep, and I remember just, just laying there in, in my bed, or the, the rollout cot they give the, the husband, um, which isn't very comfortable, and just, just thinking to myself, I may never sleep again. God, I can't, I can't raise a child if I don't sleep. What, what do you expect of me? And surely at some point in your life you felt that. Right, maybe it was a new job. Maybe it was your marriage getting into a hard place. Maybe it was when a best friend turned out to not be such a best friend. Or maybe it's just wondering, what's your future hold, right? What, what, what college, what career... It's really all of us have had moments where we're just not sure what's ahead of us or what's expected of us. So what does God want from us? Our money? For us just to be generally decent, nice people? Or does God not have much of an expectation for you? That he just expects you to be a decent, nice person. He's not really that involved in your day-to-day -day life. But if you're a Christian, 1 Corinthians 4 really lays into this question of what does God want from you? It gives us an answer, a clean and simple answer. And if you're not a Christian, I think this text gives you another potential way to see your life. A way that I would argue or, or suggest is more free and has a deeper capacity for joy than any other way to live. So what does God want from us? I would say from this text, all God wants from you is faithfulness. And I realize that sounds like a churchy word. It's not going to get anyone excited. It's boring. It sounds like a, the sort of thing you would expect a pastor to say. But trust me, there is, there is power in the life Paul is asking this ancient church in Corinth to live into. The faithfulness may seem like a dry word to us, but Paul's painting a picture of what a faithful life looks like here in 1 Corinthians 4. That a faithful life is about knowing your place about redefining the good life, following well, and living before an audience of one. So let's unpack this text under those, those four headings. That, to begin, faithfulness, it means knowing your place. 
If you've been with us the past few weeks in looking at this letter of 1 Corinthians that this Christian leader from the first century named Paul wrote to this ancient church in this ancient city named Corinth, you know one of the big issues they were wrestling with was spiritual pride, boasting, arrogance. And maybe you're at the point now where you're tired of hearing that, that, that sermon or that message and yet Paul has stayed on that for four sermons. And there's a reason. It was because it was a big problem in that day for that church and I would argue it's a big problem for us today in our churches Pride and arrogance. And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 4 hits the theme again, but he does so in a new way. And as he begins to write this section of his letter, he gives two words for the Corinthians that they need to begin to see themselves. Two things that every person, if they're a Christian, should use to define who they are. Paul writes this, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And if you're a Christian, you are first a servant and a steward. Those are the two words Paul uses to describe what these Corinthian Christians should have been seeing themselves as. And these two words, they have slightly different meanings, but Paul's really driving home one idea here. This idea of, of being a Christian means being a steward. And a steward was someone who was not the master, not the Lord over the estate. He or she was the servant at the will of whoever was the master of the estate. That to be a steward is to be in a position of trust and authority, but you're not the owner. You're not the master. That as Christians, we are stewards, which means all of us, we are not the owners of our own lives. That everything you and I have in our lives is not ours. It's God's. And as as stewards, Paul lays into what the one thing stewards are expected to be, which is Excuse me, in, in verse 2, it says, Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Your translation may say trustworthy. Faithful is a bit of a better translation there. That the idea is a steward does whatever the master asks, whatever the master respects. That's what the steward does. And he's judged on his faithfulness, or she's judged on her faithfulness. Now, all God wants from you is faithfulness. And so all that raises a question for us this morning, which is how do you see yourself As a steward? Or as the master, the owner? Those are two completely opposite ways of living with two completely different results that would come from those ways of living. And and let me just give you two diagnostics, two ways to tell that you're probably living as a steward, not as a master. And the, The first one being that stewards are free from worry. Now, if you think your life is yours and you own everything you have, you, you need to protect it, right? You feel defensive. You, you have a worry and a fear that you might lose all that you have and never get it back. But your life isn't yours. And from that comes a freedom from worry. You can take risks, be adventuresome. Right? You can take big steps of faith. Now, for example, one of the stories Jesus tells during his earthly ministry was the parable of a master who goes away from his his property for a while, and he entrusts three servants with, with different wealth. And to one servant he gave five talents, which was money um, in that day. To one servant he gives five, gives five talents. To another servant he gives two. To one servant, and I'll just note it, this probably would have been me. To another servant he gives one. And that servant goes and hides the one talent in the ground because he's afraid. Right, the, the first two, they go out, they, they take their five talents, they get five talents more. The second guy uh, gets two, has two talents, he goes out and gets two more. But the, the third one just goes and hides it. And he tells us why, in Jesus' story, why he hides it. And the servant says to the master when the master comes back, I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what's yours. Right, worry. 
and fear. Those are signs that you think you're the master of your life and not a steward. That I used to read that story and think the point was that you better double your investment or double the investment of God, whatever he gives to you, right? If you get five talents, you better get five more. If he gives you two, you better get two more, right? If you get one, you shouldn't hide it. You got to at least get the one extra talent, right? I thought it was success, right? And that's clearly not the point of Jesus' parable. The point, the reason or what the master says to the first two servants is when they come back, to, to say, hey, we got five more to you. The, the point, the thing that the master says to them isn't, hey, thanks for doubling my money. I'm wealthier now. That's great. No, what he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. Faithfulness was the key to success. You went out. You weren't the master of that, that property. You, went, you invested it. You spent it. You brought more in. But you went out and you used it up. The point of the parable is faithfulness to the master, not success on worldly terms. And so let me just ask this morning, what, what are you worried about? And if you're writing notes, take a moment, write it down. What is it? What are you worried about? Because whatever that situation is, I, I promise you this, it's whatever it is, God is the owner of that situation, not you. You're not the master of that situation. That God's put you as his steward with your unique gift set to be his steward in that place. Right? You're not there to, to solve the problem. You're not there to make everything right and everything the way it's supposed to be, although maybe that'll be God's role for you. But, but that's not the main reason God puts us anywhere. It's to be his steward, to use our gifts in those places. Right? And if you believe that, that you're not the master of life, that, you, that you're the steward, that you're able to give generously. Right? You can give your gifts, because even if it doesn't turn out okay, that's, that's okay. You're not the master. You're not the Lord over that situation. You're just the steward there to play whatever it is God wants you to play in that setting. That all God wants from you is faithfulness. That you're his steward. A steward should be free of worry. And after we sent Isaiah down to the nursery, I remember just, just sitting there thinking, you know, just being overwhelmed, right? God, what in the world did I get myself into? And I remember just having this thought. And I don't know if it's just because I was worn out and ready to give up or is it because it was the spirit of God. You know, maybe it's a little bit of both. But I just remember having this thought as Isaiah was off in the nursery, that, that Isaiah, he's not mine. He's God's. And yes, I'm called to give everything I have to Isaiah as my son. I'm called to give, and he's my responsibility, but he's not mine. I don't own him. And for like the 13 seconds I believed that, right, I rolled over and went right to sleep. Slept like a baby. Because a steward, it's, it's free from worry. So are you free from worry? Or do you think you're the master of your life, not the steward of where God has put you? Well, there's a second way to know that you see yourself as a steward and not as a master. And that's if you have a different view of the good life than those around you. Right? You've redefined the good life. And I'm just going to get this out here. This is going to be your least favorite point of the sermon. This would have been the Corinthians' least favorite point of the sermon. Paul says some really hard things in this passage. And starting with the fact that, listen, if, if you're a Christian, you have a different view of what a good life is than those who are not Christians. And the first thing that's different is the good life for the Christian, it starts with grace. And I realize that sounds like a good thing, like an easy thing, and yet the fact that, that our lives as Christians start with grace is a humbling concept if you really take it in. That these Corinthians that Paul's writing to, they have an inflated sense of themselves. They have an inflated ego. They think higher of themselves than they ought to. And so Paul sort of unleashes a bit of irony and a bit of sarcasm against them, especially in verse 7. 
especially in, in verse 7, when he begins to lay into what it means that they are, they are, they are from grace. Everything they have is, is of grace. Here's what verse 7 says. It says, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, why are you so special? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Those are some pretty heavy questions. And if you're a Christian, what those questions mean to you is everything you have is a gift. It's all a gift. It's grace. Because every human being, we all start in the same place. Right? Covered in our own spit up and poop. Right? And I have two kids that are three and one. I can prove that to you if you disagree with me. Right? That's where we all start. And if you're a Christian, you believe that was true of you spiritually. The Bible talks about before Christians are saved, we're dead in our own sins, our own pride, selfishness, self-centeredness, all of it. We're dead until Jesus comes and breathes life into us. That all of us, every last person, start in the same place in total need and dependency. And that doesn't mean, right, you may think, well, I've worked hard to get where I am. And that's good. Hard work's a good thing. But surely you didn't teach yourself the ethic of hard works. You learned it from somewhere else, Right? And surely even many of the things that, that have come along the way, your hard work that has, has produced the fruit in your life, surely other people have helped you get to where you are. Right? We all, every one of us, start in a place of need and dependency. And even if we're, we're in a, a state of success, right, it, it, it's still we had to get grace to get there. That there's no self-made people. And this doesn't mean your accomplishments in life don't matter or aren't worth celebrating. What it means is that your accomplishments, the good things we do in life, should never be a source of pride or arrogance, but only thanks and praise to God for His grace and His blessing on our life. In one way, I think you can tell, you can know that you're living into that, is, is just looking at your prayer life. Is your prayer life more the list of things you need from God? Right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but is your, is your prayer time honestly just more of, God, I need this, I need that, I need more of this? Or could you just sit down and pray and in your prayer life and just thank God? Just give Him praise and thanks for the many ways He's filled up your life with His grace. How you had nothing and now you have it all. That if you're a Christian, the good life, it starts with grace and it's a humbling prospect. It's a humbling reality. It means we can't act as if we didn't receive all that we have because we did. And you may say, well, okay, but I'm not in a place in life now to be very thankful. Life is just in a hard spot. It's rough. I'm in a place of suffering. And that's where Paul goes next in the, the, the next few verses. That for Christians, we don't just redefine the good life as starting with grace. We also redefine the good life as, as including suffering. The good life has suffering to it. And the Corinthians, in this letter, this, these people Paul is writing to, they didn't believe that. And I would argue a lot of Christians today don't believe that either. That the Corinthians assumed their Christian life only meant success. It only meant prestige and power and influence and, and, and more money, more success. That's why they, they, Paul has this, this statement about how you're living like you think you're kings or queens. That's what Paul, that's what these Corinthians thought the Christian life meant for them. And Christians today say the same sort of nonsense. That following Jesus means you'll get everything you want. You'll get your best life now, right? You'll get all the money that you could ask for. You'll get all the health that you could ask for. If you just prayed or asked enough, God will give you whatever you want. And Paul's saying that's not how his life turned out. As an apostle, his life didn't look anything like that. His life was filled with suffering. In the Corinthians, of course, Paul kind of lays into them in verse 8. 
he reflects their viewpoints with some sarcasm, some bites. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And what that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. I mean, you get the sarcasm there. Paul is, if you like sarcasm, Paul's your guy. Because he's laying it on pretty thick here. And the reason he's doing it is because they have this, this self-important view that's absolutely incorrect. And so Paul says this about them. He says, this is how you think. You think you're kings and queens. Now hear a bit about my life as an apostle called by Jesus to go and plant churches. Here's Paul's life, how he lays it out. We are fools for Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That Paul, that's how Paul lays out his life as an apostle. And so it asks, do you have room for those things in your Christian life? To be reviled, to be slandered, to be weak in this world, even to be considered scum or garbage. And you might say, well, Tim, that's Paul. Paul's really unique, and he was unique. But Paul's driving everything to verse 16, which is his central command in this, this passage, which is, he says to the Corinthians, I urge you, be imitators of me. Follow my pattern of life. Everything I just read to you that you didn't like, that should be your pattern of life. And ironically, this, those things were the reason the Corinthians had really begun to write Paul off. That they looked at his life, how many times he was arrested, that he had been beaten, that the world clearly did not think highly of Paul. They looked at all of that and said, clearly Paul's not a real pastor, a real apostle, because a good preacher would never get arrested, would never get abused like that. And yet, Paul says, that's, that's my life, and that should be, to some extent, your life too. That they saw the way Paul treated, or the way this world treated Paul, considering him scum, which was literally garbage. It was the stuff you scraped off your shoe. It's just to be unwanted. Now, the Corinthians didn't like that Christianity, and if I'm honest, I don't either. And so let me ask you, what, what's the good life for you? Does it include suffering? Or do you see the Christian life as your comfort, or your getaway to comfort and to ease? Because the good life, as Paul lays out his own life as someone faithful to Jesus, included a great deal of suffering, and really for two reasons. One, being that God said no to Paul on several occasions, and two, also that the world despises Christians. Those are two reasons that suffering will most likely be a part of your life if you're a Christian. The first being that God will say no. And most of us, I don't think, can imagine God having good reasons to say no to us. I mean, we might affirm that, but really, truly, if you got down deep, we would think God should always say yes to us. Whether we tend to think of God as a doting grandfather who's mostly removed from our life until we really need him, and then we ask and we plead and we expect him to say yes to us. And Paul's saying this way of seeing God is wrong. That God often will say no to us because it's the best thing for us. Now Wesley Hill, a Christian professor, says something I think we as Christians should hear and come to terms with and bring into our life. 
Here's what he writes. One of the, the hardest to swallow, most countercultural, counterintuitive implications of the gospel is that bearing up under a difficult burden with patient perseverance is a good thing. The gospel actually advocates for this kind of endurance as a daily dying for and with Jesus. We may wrestle with a particular weakness all our lives, but the call remains. Go into battle. There's much virtue in bearing up under a long, hard struggle, a friend of mine once told me, even if there is no apparent victory in the short run. So where might God be asking you to deny yourself in your life? Where might God be saying no to you? That struggle, that fight, contrary to what the world thinks, is actually a good thing for you. Do you believe that? That sometimes the best thing God can say to you is no. But Paul goes one step further here. Not just that God at times will say no to us as Christians and that will enter suffering into our lives, but also because this world will despise us. That the Corinthians expected to be revered and powerful because they were Christians. And after all, Jesus had defeated death. So why wouldn't they live into that power and that resurrection life Jesus displayed the morning he broke out of his tomb? Why wouldn't that power be present for us in Christians? And it will be. I mean, the, Revel- the book of Revelation talks about Christians reigning with Christ. But that's another sermon for another day. That today, in this life, we Christians follow a crucified Messiah. And that means things we say and we do, other people will find shameful. And I'll always work hard to to make the Christian faith compelling and relevant relevant because I think it's the most compelling and relevant thing there is. But Paul's own story reminds me that at the end of the day, a large group of people in this world are going to look at Christianity and see it as nothing but garbage. And see me as nothing but garbage for believing it. That the world will despise us. And Christians throughout centuries have been considered scum, garbage. They were considered that in first century Rome when Christians went out and rescued babies that Roman citizens left out to be exposed to die because they were unwanted children. And Christians went out and adopted those kids into their families. And the Roman culture thought they were garbage, ridiculous for doing that. But 150, 200 years ago when Christians went into British Parliament and fought for the end of the slave trade, they were thought to be garbage and menaces to society. The same was true 50 years ago when Christians marched in Selma fighting for racial justice. And the same is true today just for different reasons. That there will always be reasons people look at this faith and consider it garbage. It just depends on the time, the day, for what that reason is. Because after all, we follow a crucified Messiah, killed in the most shameful way human beings could invent to make it clear what this world thought of Jesus. And so do you have room in your own heart, in your own life, for people to despise you for being a Christian? Not despising because you're a jerk, or you're arrogant, or you're prideful, or you're everything Paul has condemned in the first three chapters of this book, but, but despise because no matter what you do, no matter what you say, Even when you return slander with kindness. Even when you return insults with prayer. There are going to be people who despise what you say and believe. Paul was despised. Jesus was despised. And we as his stewards can expect the same thing our master got. 
That's why we have to redefine the good life. Because as we press further into 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to say things that this world today finds garbage. It's to the point even where some Christians have begun to argue that what Paul says and Paul himself is garbage for what he says. In that moment, you're left with a choice. Do you live for the praise of this world and avoid being despised? Or do you live into the Apostle Paul and the gospel he preached and the life he lived, even when it means being despised? Because if suffering is not in your view of the good life, you won't be faithful. And that's all God wants from you is faithfulness. And at times, it's going to mean he says no to you. It's going to mean suffering enters into your life. And in those moments, all God wants from you is faithfulness. And faithfulness, it means knowing your place. It means redefining the good life. And it also means following well. Now hopefully you picked up on the irony, the sarcasm Paul uses. He lays it on pretty thick. And, and when I first read this, this text, Paul almost sounds mean. Right? He almost sounds like he's, he's really angry. But, but what's really going on there is, is Paul's showing his deep frustration as a father for his own kids. I mean, that's what he says in verses 14 and 15 when he begins to lay out his motives to the Corinthians. He says to them, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then Paul lays out his central command to them in this section. It's, I urge you then, be imitators of me. And I realize to our ears that might sound a bit prideful or arrogant, right? Paul saying, you imitate my life. But it wasn't in that day, and I still don't think it is today either, for, for a couple reasons. The one, Paul is leaning into a common idea in that day, which is that fathers were, or sons were expected to imitate their fathers. Right? And Paul, he had gone, he planted this church in Corinth. Many of these people had come to faith um, through his ministry. And so they, they were in many ways like his spiritual kids. He went and started a church and none of them were Christians until he did that. He's like their spiritual father in a way. And sons, they always imitate their dads. And especially in this day, in this culture, sons were expected to imitate their father. That if the father was a baker, the son was supposed to be a baker. The father was a farmer, the son was supposed to be a farmer. Right? And to some extent, it's still true today. That my own son, Isaiah, he, if I put my Chicago Cubs hat on, Isaiah, he wants to wear his Cubs hat. If I put my Indiana hat on, Isaiah, he wants to wear his Indiana hat on. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, he wants to be like his dad, at least for now. I know there's a time coming when he wants to be the exact opposite of me, but for now, it's great. But sons want to imitate their father, and that's what Paul is saying here. And what he's saying to the Corinthians is, Listen, I came and I, I didn't just tell you a bunch of truths you were supposed to believe about the gospel, right? Jesus died, he rose again, and believe these truths, you're good. No, I also showed you a way of life. A way of life that included suffering. A way of life that was different than the way of this world. That wasn't attached to the power and the prestige that those, this world lives by. It's a different way of living. And you've gotten the truth of the gospel, that's great, but you've forgotten. I'm calling you to live a different life. A different way of living. And so Paul says to them, Remember the way I lived my life before you. Imitate me. That's one reason it's, it's not arrogant. Paul's just leaning into the idea of fathers imitate their sons, or sons imitate their fathers. But second, the reason Paul says this is because you and I, every one of us, we're all following someone. That we're all looking more and more like someone every day. So who are you looking more and more like? And before we started here in, in Shawnee, I went and preached at the different Christ Community campuses, and I went to the Brookside campus about the week, it was the Sunday after the World Series ended with, with the Royals. 
Anytime you go and you preach to a new place, you're just always nervous. It's always hard because, you, you know, you don't know them. They don't know you. You don't know if the jokes are going to go over well. You should, it's just a hard moment. And you want to like them. You want to impress. Especially there are times when, when I know I'm preaching to elders, right, and their families who are indirectly kind of my boss. So I got done at Brookside. I finished preaching. And, and an elder and his wife were coming up to talk to me, to respond to, to my sermon. I'm just thinking, oh, I'm, I'm nervous. What are, what are they going to say? And the wife leads in first, and she says, you know, I, I just had a really hard time following you this whole time this morning. I was like, oh, bummed, right? And then she says to me, that's because the whole time you were up there, I was just looking at your beard and thinking, you could be a pitcher for the Kansas City Royals. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, I guess. All right, that's also, that was all on her mind during the, the sermon was who I look like, and I looked like someone that was a relief pitcher for, for the Royals. And... So let's ask, I mean, Paul's asking the question of the Corinthians here, let's ask the question of us this morning, who, who is it that you look like? That when others see you, who else do they see? And if all God wants from you is faithfulness, find someone who's faithful and follow her. Follow him. Pattern your life after theirs. Find people a little bit down the road from where you are that have made it through everything you hope you're trying to make it through and see how they did it. Ask them, follow them. And the Corinthians, they were pattering their lives after people who had no interest in Jesus. No wonder they were prideful and arrogant and boasting. Paul says, follow me. I'm humble. I get the gospel. And that's the call to us. If you want to be a faithful Christian, faithful to God above all else, find someone who's faithful and follow them. Follow well. And the kind of person you should be looking for is someone who, to lead into our last point, is, is following or living for an audience of one. That the Corinthians had looked at the whole of Paul's life and they had written him off. Right? And that must have been devastating to Paul, right? I mean, imagine your kids or, or people you invest your whole life into just turning their backs on you, finding you pathetic or finding you just a joke, finding you dis, just disgusting. Imagine how difficult that would be. I mean, that would ruin you, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it ruin Paul? It didn't. Paul had a fundamentally different way of looking at life than most of us. He lived before an audience of one. So when other people looked down on him, it didn't trouble him. When others thought him pathetic, it didn't bother him. And even when he got down on himself, questioned himself, that didn't plague his sense of self. Now most of us, if we're honest, we live shackled by the opinions of others or of ourselves. That we live pronouncing guilty or not good enough all the time, or we think others are pronouncing that over us. And we just keep thinking, well, if I, if I do that, or if I get this, or if I go that far in my job, or if I marry that person, or if this happens to me in my life, then I'll have done what I'm supposed to do. Then I'll matter. Then I'll have arrived. And the reality is, if you, even if you achieve those things, right, what's going to happen is, one, you're going to be filled with pride, or two, more likely, you'll find those things didn't resolve your ache. You think, you'll still think more is expected of you. You'll still think you have to earn more. But why do we do that? But what audience are we living in front of? And Tim Keller sort of points out the answer to that question in verse 6. That we, our egos are puffed up. They're broken. They're, they're distended. They're bigger than what they should be. And that's why we both feel pride and why we feel self-pity. Is that there's signs something's wrong with our sense of self? I think of it like this: when my when my body functions well, I don't notice. 
Right? I mean, I don't, I don't ever think to myself that my, my toes are doing a really good job of holding my body up today. Right? Unless my toes really hurt, then I'm really annoyed with my toes. And I notice then they point themselves out. They draw attention to themselves. It's the same thing with our ego. The reason we're always concerned with what other people think or what we think or if we're good enough is because our egos are broken and always drawing attention to themselves. And Tim Keller, he put it like this. So my ego would not be hurt unless there was something terribly wrong with it. Think about it. It's hard to get through, it's very hard to get through a whole day without feeling snubbed or ignored or feeling stupid or getting down on ourselves. That's because there's something wrong with my ego. There's something wrong with my identity. There's something wrong with my sense of self. It's never happy. It's always drawing attention to itself. Anyone relate to that? I mean, I do. As someone whose job right now in this moment is largely built on more people coming in this church, this new thing becoming viable, I feel that. Right, so if a bunch of people show up and there's great energy, I go home Sunday, I take a big nap, eat a big lunch, it's a good day. Right, or if I wake up and it's snowing and I know a bunch of people aren't going to come because it's snowing, it's like, just call the whole thing off, I'm sleeping in. All right, it's, it's despair, it's pride, it's, it's, it's either or. I'm just living before the wrong audience. I know, you, I'm, I promise you, I guarantee you, you give thought, you're in the same place. And Paul is saying, there's another way to live. Another option out of this trap. It's in verses 3 and 4. And I love these verses. I wish I could lean and live into them. But here's what Paul says. In response to these Corinthians who are judging him, who think he's a joke, this is what Paul writes. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Uh, do, you, do you see what Paul's saying there? I mean, he starts by telling the Corinthians, listen, I don't, I don't care what you think of me. But not in a prideful, dismissive, arrogant way, the way that, that phrase tends to get used today, right? When people want you to know how much they don't care what you think about them, right? And they, be, they say it to you or they say it so often, you're like, I think you may actually care a little bit what other people think of you. Paul doesn't know, he really doesn't care. He's completely dismissive of their opinion. He, he's like, listen, you can judge me, that's fine. Your judgment's not where I place value. But he doesn't do what you and I tend to do, which is right then say, well, I just care what I think about me, right? And I have a good self-esteem. I'm doing well. Paul says, no, I don't even care what I think of me. I don't judge me. It's God who judges me. And at first, that would seem like a much worse way to live, right? God's judgment hanging over you. And yet, there's a, there's a freedom here. Right? Because if God's judgment is hanging over you, that would be a terrible thing under which to live, Right, work hard all your life and hope for your best. Hope for the best when it's time for God to judge you. Always unsure you're doing enough. Always unsure that you're good enough. No, and never quite sure what the verdict God has in mind for you is. That would be a terrible way to live. Unless you already know what God's verdict over your life is. And Paul knew. He knew the verdict God had pronounced over his life. It was the verdict Paul was not earning for himself, but that had been won for him through Jesus on a cross. And that's why Paul says one of the most stunning things to me in all of the Bible, which is in other places in the Bible as well. And it's verse 5. And, and, and Paul is he's telling these arrogant Christians, hey, listen, God's going to expose your motives someday, and he's going to judge everything you thought and think, which just sounds terrifying, right? And you would expect Paul to say, okay, and then on that day, what's going to happen is those of you who did good things, you're going to get a good verdict. And those of you who did bad things, you're going to get a bad verdict. But Paul does not say that. Where he lands in verse 5 is that if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, 
that day, the judgment day that's coming, this is what Paul says. It says, then each one, each Christian, will receive his commendation, his praise from God. If you're in Christ, on the day of judgment, God will sing and say his praises over your life. Paul knew his verdict. It was already in. It had been won for him. As if you're a Christian, at the end, God will look over your life and, and, and praise you. That all God wants from us is faithfulness. And we can be faithful to the end because he is endlessly faithful to us. Not because we've earned the verdict, not because we're earning the verdict, but because Christ won it for us on the cross. So what other audience could you live for? What other audiences could give you the praise, the sense of self-worth or joy that God could give you? What other praise could silence your self-doubts and cover the great mistakes of your life? Nothing. Now who cares what others think of you? And who cares what you think of you? You have one judge. His name is Jesus. He gave his life up for you. That he took on the bad verdict that you deserve so we could live endlessly in the praise that he deserves. Where else could we want to live? Let's pray.